the Russian invasion of eastern Ukraine on February 24, 2022, surprised many around the world for its speed and scale, making it the largest military operation in Europe since World War II. Western media was quick to condemn the action as a flagrant act of aggression on the part of Russia's leader, Vladimir Putin, while news sources in other parts of the world, particularly China, India, and Africa, have been more sanguine, viewing this as a defensive response to NATO encroachment on Russia's border. Dr. Matthew Raphael Johnson, Russian scholar and longtime author on the political economy of the region, joins us tonight to help us disentangle the truth from the propaganda. Because Dr. Johnson has received numerous interview requests and can only speak with us for one hour, we will be following this episode in the coming days with a brief After Dark bonus show focusing on the potential long-reaching supply chain implications of this conflict. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time, Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the Myth of the 20th Century. Today I'm with my co-host Nick, but we are joined by a very special guest, Dr. Matthew Raphael Johnson. He has joined us before to talk about the, uh, the East, Russia in particular, uh, but obviously today the world has been focused on Ukraine. And Dr. Johnson has published um, a couple of books that are pertinent to this topic, uh, one on Russia and one on Ukraine. Um, I'll let him maybe give a little bit more background on that if he'd like. Uh, But to start us off, uh, they often say the first casualty of war is the truth. And I have, as many others have, been uh, very skeptical of getting sucked into this distraction uh, media narrative of what's going on. And we're instinctively very distrustful, uh, frankly, anything, whether it's from Ukraine, Russia, or the West, uh, in terms of believing the, the facts versus what they're telling us. So Dr. Johnson, since you've dedicated uh, much of your professional career to studying Russian history and the area uh, around Russia, can you try to help us navigate where we can find reliable information and maybe point us to some unreliable sources that we can discount. And I would, I would ask also that if you could maybe help us uh, do that for the Russian sources as well, not just the American sources, which we know are very unreliable. Uh, but can you maybe point us to places where we can find the truth? And of course, give us a little bit of background um, if you if you wouldn't mind updating us where you've been. And uh, for those who are new to you, um, maybe talk about some of your books and your research. All right. Well, let's start off talking about me. Um, I got my uh, PhD in, in comparative politics and political philosophy, or the history thereof, uh, in 99 from Nebraska-Lincoln on a fellowship. Um, I was the editor of the Barnes Review and worked for Willis Cardo for a long time. I've been a professor at four universities. And oh, by the way, I think I've told you this before, but uh, I was um, fired from uh, MSMU uh, partially because in my 20th century history class, I assigned Alfred Rosenberg, Myths of the 20th Century. Apparently that was too much for them. That was a big part of why I got kicked out of it. Um, now, to find me, dealing with, you know, Russo-Ukrainian ideas, which is pretty much all I do anymore. I taught myself how to read the, the languages, uh, which is why I have information that no one else has. Um, Radio Albion is kind of my headquarters, thanks to Sven Longshank. Um, my personal website is rusjournal.org, R-U-S journal. Um, I'm not updating it as much as I should, uh, and, but my Orthodox Nationalist on Wednesdays, and my half-hour international uh, political economy show on, on Thursdays, these are essentially university lectures. 
I have no fluff. I don't have guests. I don't have anything like that. Um, you know, almost you know, no graphics, nothing. Uh, occasional uh, insult to my opponents is pretty much all the extra stuff you're going to get. Um, and that's um, uh, of my 16 books. I get to the one that really matters the most is Ukrainian nationalism, which is the title that I one of the biggest book I ever uh, wrote, which was published by Hromada um, Press and, and with the assistance of Russia Insider. A whole bunch on Russia, but more well, the two significant ones are. Um, Russian populist, the political thought of Vladimir Putin, which is the only one of its kind, and um, on, a, on Western military failures in the Islamic world. It's very important because I deal with what NATO is and um, the U.S. military itself, of which I have tons of stuff on my Patreon page, which is uh, a big deal for me. Uh, Patreon, you search for my full name, it's Patreon, it will come up. Um, I publish all kinds of things that... Um, aren't necessarily, you know, Russo-Ukrainian. I have a whole section on the decay of the American military, stuff, whether it be sports, entertainment, stuff I'm not known for. Um, and I have a strong following that. So, um, yeah, I was on my honeymoon when this broke. I was like two days in. And I promised myself that I wasn't going to think about any of this stuff while I was doing that. The world could burn for all I care. But now, now I have to think differently. This is all I do, and it's the most painful aspect of this, that the, you know, when you're a specialist in an area, then you hear laymen, especially hostile laymen, who only know what the newspapers say, try to lecture me. It's awful. It's painful. The assumptions, the, the total ignorance. Now, you know what Johnson's Law is. Um, I coined that when I was working on something on Burma with the Barnes Review many years ago with Michael Collins Piper. Johnson's Law, which I named after myself, says this. The more obscure the country, the more the media can lie about because there's so few people that can contradict them. And the corollary to that is the more obscure the area, the more mistakes are going to be made. No one's going to do due diligence and something that no one really is going to uh, be able to contradict you on. So public ignorance is perfect for this regime this is like it's say the place is made out of cheese, and very few people can contradict them. Um, and what we're looking at now is a massive clampdown, far worse than before, on all forms of media and academia. They will destroy anyone who, um, who says anything other than the official narrative. And thank God I have a readership and I have friends like you who give me a, a reach where I can be financed by my listeners. But when you're a full-timer, that's extremely difficult to do. You know, I lost my PayPal account right when this war started. That's not a, you know, this is not an accident. Now, as far as um, sources, I tell you, I've always loved uh, globalresearch.ca, the Institute for Research on, uh, on Globalization. They are, they've been a, a source for me for a long time. Excellent uh, authors there. Um, the Russian press is really important. Uh, Katon, uh, I can send you the link later, uh, has been feeding me information now for quite some time. Some of it's in English, some of it's in, in Russian. Um, the American press, uh, sorry, the Russian press agencies like TASS and things like that, uh, Prav does okay. Um, uh, that's, that's a nice way to go, at least to balance. Um, and I, I really don't, I don't recommend even reading um, most English language sources because they are trying to set the, the foundation. They decide what the terms of the debate are. They decide what's real. They decide how words are defined. And other than, you know, to roll your eyes. And the only reason I have to do it is I need to see what my opponents are saying. But at this point, after 30 years, I know exactly what they're saying without reading it. I mean, I could, I could write a speech for them. And um, um, so that's, you know, I, I know what they're saying. I can predict what they're saying. And there is almost not a shred, I mean this, I'm not being funny, there's almost not a shred of truth to this. At the, very, at the very least, the truth is usually the direct opposite of what they're saying. It's not crazy to say that what the American press is writing is really a projection. It's a, it's a way to project their own failures onto who they've invented as their enemy, and Putin and Russia are invented entities. 
in their mind. They've created this purely subjective uh, boogeyman, these, these ideological assumptions. Um, they've created this this iconic grid for themselves. And woe, like any other kind of narcissistic person, it is very dangerous to try to burst their bubble, no matter how good you are. Because a narcissist or a schizophrenic or psychotic, when um, they're contradicted and there's nowhere else for them to go, they will lash out. That goes for individuals as well as empires. So to put it in the simplest terms possible, liberalism in the West are failing miserably. The debt, the uh, economic uh, depression, which has been going on for decades, the invasion of, of hostile non-whites, the massive suicide rate for um, white middle-class male, the domination of Marxism in every single institution, including the government itself, the total domination of massive monopolies like BlackRock and Vanguard. And that's pretty, pretty much it over all major investment decisions, over all government policy. Um, including the Defense Department, the corruption that we don't even have the vocabulary to describe. That's just the beginning. Total alienation, no national belonging, no sense of community in the West. That is, of course, that is essentially what happens when you adopt the liberal program over time. Sending people to jail for saying the most inoffensive things that may be uh, nationalist in, in nature. Arming and permitting terror groups on their own soil to hurt people like us privatizing all of this stuff. And when you have a regime that can't possibly last much longer, with no money, hyperinflation around the corner, massive unemployment, lying about everything, a military that is physically and ideologically falling to pieces, and I have article after article on that, including the service academies, and yet they still want a massive war against countries that are highly stable and prosperous. Well, what do they do? They have very few tools to use, and one of them is the total control over information, total demonization to the point where you can't tell the difference between an action movie and foreign policy reporting. I've talked about this too, where foreign policy reporting is almost based on the action movie genre, the diehard kind of movie. That's how they – or a Bond villain. That's how they describe um, opponents. You see what a Bond villain is like. They just project that onto, onto these people with no comprehension of what's actually going on, what the policies really are. And they tell us, remember, remember what a journalist is. It always struck me that journalists are not expert in their field. They're not scholars. They're not um, even knowledgeable in economics, political science, or foreign policy. If that were the case, that those are the people who would be writing these articles. You'd have actual academic uh, specialists writing these things, but they're not. They don't even have a, a foreign foreign press corps anymore. They're too expensive. The point of a journalist is to tell a story. It's pointing out what, what they think is wrong with the world and then creating a, a narrative, a, a drama, um, a morality play that will capture listeners uh, and readers' uh, attention. None of this has anything to do with actually telling the truth. That is not their purpose. You know, theoretical and practical insight is not what they're doing. The purpose of the journalist is to tell a good story, and in this case, a story that exclusively flatters uh, the left because the regime is a leftist one. Ideology is at the core of it all, and corporate America will lose a fortune in promoting this agenda. That's what a journalist is, the black hat, white hat kind of dichotomy, good guys, bad guys, the action movie trope. This is what they know gets a reader's attention. Their purpose is not to describe things or to explain things or to get to the, the heart of the matter. Their purpose beyond the, the liberal uh, leftist agenda, but beyond that, their purpose is to tell a story. And you need to remember that when you read um, any of these things. And it's really painful thinking about you know, the New York Times has my stomach in knots. And in this case, where you're talking about war propaganda, where now they're under pressure to say things that you, you guys have all heard about the Facebook policy. I've been thrown off Facebook two years now over the uh, Rittenhouse uh, thing. Yeah, you're, you're allowed to uh, commit hate speech, but only against Russians. Oh, my God. I mean, they're not even hiding it. It used to be that they would they would couch this in, in language. They sugarcoat it, but they're not doing that anymore. So um, the, the good news – well, I'll get into the good news later. But that's how you have to approach this and making sure you know specialists like myself – and tell you, even non-specialists, Paul Craig Roberts, 
has been one of my favorite authors for a long time. I strongly recommend reading him. Um, you know, Daily Stormer. We've had some disagreements in the past, but he has some great stuff. He has an excellent work ethic. A lot of it is, you know, comedy and parody, but there's nothing wrong with that. Um, the um, uh, and of course the other uh, institutions that I've mentioned, I love um, the Center for Research on Globalization. I think I said that wrong before. Globalresearch.ca. I, I can't brag about it enough. And they don't even have. They're not ideological. They, they're from all over the place. You know, they're from all you know, leftist right. You know, it's called anti-imperialist camp. I can't brag about them enough. Peiton uh, is um, is something that's been around. It's um, um, again, mostly it's K A T E H O N. And I've been I've been reliant on them fairly recently. Dot com uh, fairly recently, relying on them heavily. When I first got back, I needed them. And they really, they sent some wonderful things. Um, there's a lot of military blogs and stuff like that. Uh, things like you know, the Eastern Republics, which all have all been taken off the air. That's a, a definite big sort. Unfortunately, a lot of it isn't in English. Um, the, but global research, I would say, if I had to pick one place, that's where I would go. And they're, uh, it's a huge website. Um, one of my favorite articles, one of the best so far, is called Russia Adjusts to Sanctions from Hell. Came out on the 14th um, from Bhatra Kumar, who's an Indian. And oh, it's an excellent article. Someone actually gets it. I don't even know what he is politically. He could be a nationalist. I don't know what the heck he is. Actually, I, I've seen some very interesting analysis coming from India. I don't know uh, why that is, uh, perhaps because they have uh, maybe somewhat of a neutral stance historically with uh, regards to the United States and Russia, but I've I found some of their takes to be refreshingly uh, unbiased uh, in my you know just un unprofessional opinion. Uh, it's just my gut instinct in, in hearing what they have to say. Uh, so that's that's not too shocking. It's interesting though, uh, and I would like to talk a little bit about some of the sanctions and supply chain ramifications, perhaps later on if we have time, um, to maybe bring us to where this all started. And and that's that's. I'd even... I'd like Adam to ask a question first. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> regarding. Uh, propaganda before we move on. Uh, Mike, I find it curious uh, the amount of effort that is put into the propaganda apparatus in the West and in America specifically, considering how little ability the American people, the citizens of the uh, American economic zone, have to affect foreign policy. And what I wonder is I mean, you laid out the, the decrepit state of American imperial power uh, domestically as well as abroad. And I wonder to what extent this um, propaganda is directed more so at maybe you'd say the lower, lower level managers of the empire. Because if anyone can be said to have hubris for sure, it would be these types uh, you know, the New York Times types or the the people who don't really matter, the front goys as well. When, to my suspicion, the people who really do matter, I mean, these are not people who really have a country. If they do have a country, the country is called Israel. And if you look at what Israel is doing in the context of this conflict, they're definitely taking a step back from America and taking a more neutral position. Uh, are the is it possible that they're ready to scuttle the ship, the golem of American power, and pivot to the east? That is the international money power, the the international Jew. That's um. Well, let's let's you you ask two things there, and the first one um uh, is an excellent point about who this is aimed at. We know that foreign policy has never ever ever been a matter of any kind of democratic or even constitutional control. This is purely an elite uh, financial decision over the last few hundred years. Most people, I don't know, you, I, I could send you the link to the uh, study. Uh, it was actually, it's actually seven years old now. The Washington Post um, reported on a study where how many Americans, I think it was about 2,500 people in the sample, can point to Ukraine on a map. 
And I, I've heard of this before. It's 10%. And the average, you know, when they, when they incorrectly pointed to a, to a place, the average distance from Ukraine was on a map 1,400 miles. Um, it goes up a little bit for college-educated people. It's uh, not quite 17%. Military families are somewhere in between 10 and 17%. Now, none of this is a shock to anybody. You can't expect people to, to know this sort of thing. But there is a connection, a very close connection, between not being able to find Ukraine on a map and the support for violence in Ukraine's favor, U.S. intervention in the war. Now, that doesn't surprise me, but it may surprise some of you and uh, some of our listeners, there is the more ignorant you are, the more willing you are to send troops to um, East, Eastern Europe. And the fact that military families are something like 12 percent. I come from a military family, which I never took part in. But that is um, that is dangerous. So um, so that so your target audience, when you said a New York Times, you mean their readers, right? Yeah, I, I mean they're yeah. readers, but I, I also, yeah, it, particularly the that the, the managerial class of yeah. urbanite professionals who benefit, who are the 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 final category of people who benefit from the American system. Yeah, yeah, some of the lower level of your white collar type. It's really important. Now they're importing people from uh, South Asia to try to you know replace, but it's still a substantially white um, phenomenon. You know, computer people. People who would maybe live in the suburbs or have a nice apartment somewhere in, in, in a, a city, in the outskirts of a city. I, I would say that you're absolutely correct, and that's an excellent point. That's the target. Masses of people don't matter for anything, let alone uh, important foreign policy decisions. But if you have a mass exodus from those positions that you're talking about, you have an extremely, you have an extremely difficult problem. And I'll use one example. Fifteen years ago, a big proportion – of workers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics quit en masse. And it was because, as I said in their manifesto, they said that we are being told to lie. We're being told to lie about this, unemployment, inflation, the economic future, uh, government, even government policy, lobbyists. And they went and formed something called Shadow Statistics, which is a pay site, but again, it is excellent. But they also explain why the numbers are so bad, what the lie consists in. That inflation is twice what it really is. That unemployment is about 30% right now. And they explain how, how they manipulate figures. That's a, that was a crisis. Now, can you imagine taking that same phenomenon and bringing it to the university or bringing it to um, the computer field, bringing it to the medical field? You know, kind of that, you know, well, medical, of course, is, is upper class, but these white collar middle class types. But if they simply have had enough, what's going to happen? Now, these people are drowning in debt. They're deeply alienated. Their marriages, you know, their, their divorce rate is, is something like 65%. Um, they have no control over their kids. They're working constantly. They literally own nothing. Their debt is so high. Um, they're, they're on drugs. They're, you know, huge uh, psychotropic, uh, psychotropic uh, dependency. Um, so it is started that these people might be defecting in huge numbers, especially after the Trump issue, you know, the two elections. So keeping them happy, telling them that it's all okay, you're, you're doing the right thing, uh, you'll get a raise soon, that kind of thing, is really important to them. Um, so the propaganda, it's saying that it's largely aimed at them, is I think is accurate. No one cares what the lower class thinks about anything. Now, remind me what the second question was. The second question was the the real power brokers behind the American oh, Israel, Empire. Israel. Oh, okay. Are, yeah. I think it's over. It's overdrawn to say that Israel somehow was going to uh, jump ship. That isn't going to happen. Now, as the Wushu Chinese um, coalition grows in power and strength, bringing in well, what I you know the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the most significant institution in global politics today, and it includes Russia, China as its founders, uh, Iran, believe it or not, India and Pakistan, all of Central Asia. Even once in a while, Turkey, and um, it's connected to some extent with the Belt and Road Initiative. As that grows, you will see that type the Jewish uh, uh, elite trying to weasel their way in. The good news there is that this isn't America. 
very few people trust them over there. In Russian politics, talking about the Jews is day to day. You say they say talk about that on the floor of the of the parliament. It's mainstream there. Um, and Jews only amount to I think 0.02 percent of the population. So it's a very different story. They're not they're not brainwashed in school like Americans are. So I think for the the medium term, they're going to stay with with where they are. They dominate um, Western governments. BlackRock is now the monopoly that makes Rothschilds look um, look minor, but they're all connected, of course. BlackRock controls American economics. They control the stock market. They own Nasdaq. On their board, they have members from every central bank in Western Europe, and vice versa. They have people from Facebook, and and you know they have people on those boards. Military people. I've been through many times a list of people who they control. It's about half of uh, so-called Joe Biden's cabinet. Um, their their wealth is immeasurable. And so now we've gone from um, uh, an oligarchy to now a monopoly. And we all know who runs uh, BlackRock. They're not Hindus. And they have laid it out on really on their website that corporate America now is going to be overtly leftist in its hiring, in its policies. And what they say goes, the environmental crap, feminism. And um, uh, so even as whatever, whatever the short or medium term is for an institution like this, Israel, since it already uh, has people all over the place, they can't jump ship. You know, um, you know when, when, when these elites walk into Washington, D.C., it's like they're walking into a Chinese restaurant, like they're a partner. You know, like you, you better listen to me. You're like walking into a Chinese restaurant on Christmas Day. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know how they walk into a Chinese, Jackie Mason used to talk about this. Like, they own the place. But in Moscow, it's a different story. Putin doesn't need them. They hate him. He's, he stabilized the situation in Syria, which made Israel almost use a Samson option on themselves. Um, but when they go over there, they realize he doesn't need them. And they have their hats in hand. And they have no real uh, – they're such a minor uh, part of the population. So the education system is very different. The church is huge. So, um, so that's the reason I would say no. What does matter, though, is the project of New Kazadia. Many of you may have heard me talk about New Kazadia. This was the idea that um, Israel's in trouble. Ever since 2000, they were driven out of South Lebanon. And they need to go somewhere else. Now, we all know that, that Israel, in their mind, really is New York City and Boston and Chicago and everywhere else. But to have a, a place where only Jews can function and control it racially like they do in Israel, the idea was to move to Odessa in Ukraine. That's why you have the largest synagogue complex there, the menorah, um, in the world. And people like Kolomoisky and, and um, uh, you know, Kaganovich and, and what's his name uh, – uh, from Hungary, not Soros, the other one, um, uh, Mogilevsky, whatever his name is, have have invested heavily in colonizing. Now, the IDF has been there. You have settlers coming in. And that's why the – supposed to be not only Odessa, but also Crimea, which was, by the way, thrown around as a possible um, uh, Zionist target before before Israel, uh, before you know, the Israel in the Middle East. And that's now never going to happen. And um, and of course, you see these Jews supporting you know, the right sector, which you know, makes me chuckle. Um, so they really do have no no ideological center. They they say what they have to say, but that's a huge blow to them too. Um, their hatred for Russia as the final resting place of Rome. I talk about this in my book on the murder of the royal family. There, it, it knows no bounds. We can't describe it. We don't know what that kind of neurotic hatred really is. So they'll go down with the ship before they um, uh, try to work with Russia in its nationalist, you know, Eurasianist form. They tried to take it over before. They succeeded for a while, as we all know. Putin threw water on that fire. And, um, and so supporting, supporting Russia while well, that he or his people are in power is out of the question. They'll, they'll kill themselves first. So um, I understand why you're asking that question, but – um, they're going to stay where they are for the moment. So th- there have been a few names that I've uh, 
I've been familiar with, but have become more prominent with this, uh, with this recent crisis. Uh, people like uh, John Mearsheimer has been uh, being trotted out quite a bit. Uh, there was a general, uh, or not a general, um, a, a military man, uh, I believe he was at least a colonel. Uh, Douglas McGregor has been talking about uh, some of the reasons why Russia may be doing this, uh, and many have compared it to uh, from the United States perspective, what uh, the Soviet Union did in placing missiles in Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis compared to perhaps what uh, Zelensky was referring to in Munich uh, regarding nuclear weapons uh, from the United States being positioned close to Russia. Can you maybe comment on some of these analyses as to why this uh, incursion by Russia into the eastern part of Ukraine has occurred? Why is this... Uh, why has this become more of a an actual kinetic war as opposed to a, a spoken war? Uh, why, why is this starting, uh, and why has why has it uh, gotten hot? Well, McGregor isn't half bad. I'm, I was reading him about an hour ago. Um, a colonel, even a former colonel in the military, I kind of roll my eyes. But um, some of these guys, and I'll tell you now, and I was saying this in the war in, in um, Iraq and Afghanistan. I've been saying this for years. There is a huge crisis of desertion in the U.S. military. I've written about all these cases they have, how they're lying about it. So McGregor is pretty good. The other one, I, I hear about him, but I, I have, you know, I'm, I'm translating Russian stuff. I don't have the time right now. He seems to be blamed for a lot of stuff. But the more significant question is, is the reason for this. And Putin and the Russian defense ministry couldn't be clearer. The breakaway republics of eastern Ukraine. I was the very first to translate their Declaration of Independence uh, and Constitution into English when it first happened. They are heroes. They're you know social nationalists in every sense of the term, allied with Russia now officially recognized. That that, that was a big error for Russia to to wait so long to recognize them. But they fought the Ukrainian army uh, after the takeover in 2014, and they beat them. To the point where, you know, you had a, talk about desertion, you had a mass, still have a massive desertion problem in that army. No one is fighting for these people. Now, um, not just uh, Zelensky, but Poroshenko uh, had plans laid out. Uh, There's a RAND report on it. They talked about it elsewhere. The Russian Defense Ministry talks about it to wipe out Donetsk and Lugansk uh, off the map using chemical weapons if necessary. Bringing the nuclear weapons in. The chemical stuff has been well known. You don't have a stable um, conventional force in the West, certainly not from the U.S. So all of a sudden now nuclear weapons are perfectly okay. You know, if you're my age, you remember the violent no-nukes policy of the left when the Soviet Union existed. Now, the Cold War is largely a myth. The U.S. was always pro-Soviet, at least ideologically. The only time they hated the USSR is if you know, their empire was getting too big. Um. The plans to invade and destroy uh, Donbass were revealed, and it was really for the end of February. This is really the, the uh, proximate cause of the invasion. The plans that were laid out were pretty genocidal. Bringing in the nuclear stuff, all that there was uh, 10 NATO installations, uh, or at least NATO financed installations, have all been wiped out in Ukraine. Uh, the nuclear weapons was the final straw. Don't forget what's happening. Ukraine went from a central, well-educated, high-tech economy to essentially a third-world failed state in just a few years, where Belarus and Russia, you know, recovered from the 1990s. The economy essentially non-functional has been for a long time. So has the their current their their currency. Um, you've had a banning of the Russian press in Ukraine. Any opposition press or party has been. Um, thrown off of wherever they are. They don't have radio. That's been that's been gone. Um, of course, their threats against the Crimea after it, it um, begged Russia to take them a few years ago, cutting off water, um, doing everything. Now it's irrelevant, but but all of this stuff, the violent anti-Russian uh, propaganda um, and the constant shelling of the Donbass area. You had 14,000 civilians killed uh, over the last five years, because the Ukrainian army, of course, humiliated 
is lobbing shells into um, into these areas. And finally, they they have been doing this for a long time. They finally said this has to stop. The peace treaty from uh, 2015 has been you know torn up. And when the number of dead civilians in Donetsk got too big, that was yet another huge reason for this invasion. And it all kind of began to coalesce around the same time um, between 2016 and, and now. So if there's ever a country that had a right to invade another, it is this. There's so many Russian speakers there. The support for the Ukrainian government is almost zero and has been since uh, at least 2004, 2005. The economic failures. Um, and the popularity of Russia. Putin and Russia are fairly popular in Ukraine. Um, the Kievan uh, Institute of Sociology, so I've been quoting this study for a long time, this is a few years old, polled, huge poll of Ukrainians. And in the Central and Eastern regions, pro-Russian attitude of one form or another, yeah, 65%, roughly. Even in the West, you had a 40%, um, you know, they had a positive view of Russia and the Russian state. Um, their view of the West, very different story. So Putin knows that he has a support there. Um, and so that that's really what this comes down to. He knows that this, this government has not a shred of legitimacy. And its policies since then have been so egregious. He would have been criminally negligent if he didn't invade. I think it should have been done a little while earlier. But if there's any, uh, he had every right, every moral right to invade and to demilitarize um, to remove the nuclear weapons, the chemical weapons, and to um, have some vaguely legitimate government take over there. They want to turn it into a Finland, a neutral border state, partition it if necessary. But that's the that's the basis of this. And because of public ignorance, even elite, elite ignorance is just as bad as public ignorance, this is the reason it became hot. Again, just from a layman's perspective, I can't help but notice that the disorganization and disarray of the Biden administration must have been tempting for Putin uh, to view the United States as weak uh, and perhaps unable to respond to this in any other way than it's it's been doing with uh, social media campaigns and whatnot. Um, however, you know the sanctions have been uh, a point of contention and. I don't know if we want to get into that later, but um, maybe we can just discuss it now because yeah, we can talk about it now. That's no problem. Yeah the the United States is doing what it typically does in these types of situations. It's trying to get other countries to do its dirty work for it in regards to actually physically fighting a war. Uh, they tried to get the Poles to uh, put their air force into the Ukrainian uh, territories to start uh, targeting Russians um, uh, on behalf of essentially of NATO, but uh, they wisely decided not to do that. Uh, but the economic, um, Retaliation, I think, has been the focus of the United States at the moment uh, in terms of just sheer uh, impact. And I wanted to hear your take on why you think that may not be as significant as some others have uh, viewed it to be uh, towards the Russians and then perhaps vice versa. Um, obviously, the... The specialties of the different uh, players here, uh, Russia being a, a huge country with lots of uh, natural resources, but uh, perhaps other other things to offer economically uh, has been where the sanctions have uh, placed it under pressure. But also uh, Russia depends on quite a few uh, goods that uh, in the high tech sector, especially that it, it has to import that have been taken away from it. Uh, so where do you think the, the future takes us with uh, the economic trade aspects? Uh, is China going to be the uh, alternative that Russia goes to for some of its uh, imported goods? Uh, what about its, uh, its export markets? Uh, th there's so many areas to cover here, but can you maybe talk about where the economics of this uh, are likely to take us going forward? Yeah, the, the economic part of it is something that I've been focusing on for a long time. Because without understanding the economic foundations, the uh, politics doesn't make a whole lot of sense. As it stands right now, Putin's popularity is about 70%. And it's gone, 70% it, is probably its lowest, 70, 
and it goes up to you know, 95 after the Crimean issue. If you ever spoke to a um, you know, academic or even government economist, you realize why things are such a disaster. Um, my brother-in-law was the, uh, uh, one of the export import banks, the vice president. And I get some of the inside ideas here. The myth that Russia is somehow dependent on oil and gas just simply won't die. This is kind of lazy reporting. Um, Russia's oil and gas sector amounts to maybe at most 10% of its, of its GDP, a little bit more in terms of exports. Canada and Norway are far more dependent on, on oil than, than Russia is. It is nice for hard currency, and it does have a strong political component to it. Russia and China have been tremendous trade partners, military allies for a very, very long time. I made the argument, God, you know, in 05, maybe earlier, that the Russo-Chinese alliance is central to finally smashing liberalism once and for all, because everything they do, you know, China is a national socialist state. <laughs> the last time, you know, when Mao died, they rounded up um, his friends and supporters and threw him in prison, including his widow, um, and had nothing to do with those policies ever since then. And it, it you know, the, the private sector there is stronger than, than anywhere else. And it is the largest economy in the world. It doesn't have oil, though. And they have found common ground on a lot of things, military technology, uh, huge markets. You know, there's probably only two countries in the world that can be totally self-sufficient. And that's the U.S. and Russia. But the U.S. has an empire, so it can't be. Russia really doesn't need the West. They have no faith in a Western economy that is um, that doesn't have long to go. The massive levels of debt, the collapse of, of consumer demand, the monopolization of their corporate sector, and the privatization of the government. They're not. They don't trust anything that happens there. Um, the um, oil, because of Western sanctions, now the price has gone through the roof. And so this is only going to benefit that sector. Um, it wasn't that long ago, Prime Minister uh, Mikhail Mishutin uh, informed Putin that he has created his own headquarters for dealing with these, these sanctions, uh, protecting the domestic market, uninterrupted functioning of, of, of corporations, eliminating all kinds of logistical disruption, small and medium-sized businesses, um, full support for that, and maintaining their extremely low unemployment rate. There's all kinds of laws that are coming out of here, uh, stabilizing financial markets, um, private sector stuff. There's a, um, uh, a law to prevent any shutdown of factories by foreign owners. They're even hinting at nationalization, which I think is, is going to start happening. Um, now, most Western owners are announcing their what they call uh, temporary suspension of operations while still paying salaries. They have to do this legally. Um, and because anyway, they're, they're lowering taxes across the board, they're lowering all kinds of VAT taxes on, on gold and fuel, um, and they can do this because, number one, the Russian economy has a massive trade surplus and budget surplus. They got money to do this. Number two, Russia and China own most of the world's gold, so they're cushioned for decades. Anybody connecting with, with Western Europe financially is in trouble. Their institutions don't function at all. People don't realize um, that the sanctions on banks uh, did not affect, you know, how the sanctions law works. It has to be it has to be specific people and institutions. You can't just have broad sanctions. It doesn't exist. Um, but the part of the reason they they changed that, I think, during the uh, the sanctions on Iraq, uh, they much were much more broad. But there was a lot of criticism uh, to the United States, in particular, uh, for affecting. Uh, the food security of the Iraqi people, et cetera. And so I think the sanctions regime was, quote-unquote, reformed to be much more targeted towards the elites, uh, such as uh, going after their bank accounts. Uh, there have been stories of seizures of Russian oligarch yachts, et cetera. Uh, and so I think the, the type and nature of sanctions has become a little bit more targeted, and perhaps it's less effective. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they, they could change that back. You know, you never know. I have a paper on the question um, on the, uh, the Iraq thing did um, have an impact. The institutions, the accounts, then you have to give a reason. Then you 
you have to say, okay, in five or better, we'll then withdraw. Sanctions on an entire or an entire, it has to be legally speaking, it has to be specifically targeted, empowered to cancel them at any time. But now in terms of the financial sector, well, yeah, Russia's, Russia's connection with the U.S. and the finance sector is, is minimal. But the SWIFT, that was for, for years now, the sanctions did not target um, Spurbank or uh, Gazprom Bank, two of Russia's largest uh, uh, banking um, systems. Why? It could be because Europe is dependent on energy and other exports, um, and, and therefore... Uh, cannot the, the banks have not been touched? You know, um, you know, Russia is so integrated. These big companies are so integrated into the Western world. They are dependent on, and they're critical resources of all types. And don't forget, Russia has been preparing for this since at least 2014, probably before then. Um, you talk about the SWIFT system, which is a credit card processing. Um, Russia responded a long time ago with the Mir system. And now they have the system uh, for transfer of financial messages. So they've had an alternative for a long time. Now, a few years ago, I went on Mir's website, and it said participating banks, only in Cyrillic, and I saw Citibank and Wells Fargo listed on it. So, in other words, even the big banks in the West, they'll condemn uh, Russia on one side of their mouth, but just to hedge their bets, they'll make sure to be a part of their alternative systems too. This is why sanctions are ridiculous. When was the last time you heard of American corporation being brought in front of a judge because they violated a sanctions law? It never happens. Every, every once in a while you come across a, like a foreigner who does that. But in terms of American companies, I, I've never heard of a company being like, you know, Facebook being raided um, by, um, by the federal government because they're violating some sanctions law. I've never heard that one time. It's, these are very symbolic. Now, um, the good news with all of this is it's going to cement a block, an anti-American, which means anti-liberal, block of economy. A huge chunk of Africa has really condemned these sanctions in this war, which is interesting. All of Central Asia, China, uh, Russia, of course, now Pakistan, and India is not going to, you know, it's really not, India is is not going to participate in, in most things. The fact that Russia can get India and Pakistan to cooperate on this really is, is remarkable. So this non-Western, non-liberal bloc, now with most of the gold in the world, with pretty much full employment, um, now doesn't have to listen to, to um, you know, uh, um, Goldman Sachs anymore. They're able to um, create their own infrastructure, which they've been working on for 15 years, and with far more money, with far, with no liberal agenda, a part of it. Um, and now they could do it freely. They, they've taken over um, the banking system, which is no longer private, which is no accident. Uh, inflation is not a huge problem. They have increased, uh, Russia has increased interest rates recently, but that's just to protect the, the currency. Um, and I'll say it one more time, the massive mountains of gold that they have, you know, you can have zero economic activity in Russia for 10 years. And it's not going to affect anything. The U.S. doesn't own an ounce of gold. There is a paper, there's a file cabinet with LUs in it. The gold market is based on a piece of paper, not on actual physical gold. In the, and the Germans found this out the hard way not too long ago. Um, that's all mortgage for debt. Russia and China own this. And now because they're considered a stable area for investment, more and more and more are, uh, are, are, are being brought in. Russia you know, is essentially on a gold standard. Um, and you know, the Chinese economy actually producing things doesn't have to worry either. This is just going to deepen the anti-liberal bloc, and as this war is a miserable failure over there. I mean, the Ukrainian army was a joke, and we all knew this. The only fighting that's being done is from the right sector and, and um, Azov and the rest of it. And there's only uh, um, at most 5,000 combined. Maybe, maybe that's probably too, too, uh, too great. Um, they're really just a, a kind of a militia force. But... Um, with all this happening, everything I said, the, the conclusion is liberalism is finished. It's humiliated. It's exposed itself as a totalitarian, uh, censorship crazy, uh, military failure, totally unstable uh, ideology. On the other hand, the Russo-Chinese system, 
which is some variant variation of national socialism of one type or another, um, is being exposed as the, the best alternative. And any country that adopts this does very well. Belarus is a classic example. Hard currency, a gold standard, an economy that, that um, has strong labor representation, a state, tremendous state influence over economic decisions, not just for private international banks. Um, this is doing extremely well under intense pressure. And think of South Africa in the 70s. You know, and they're now going to make everything. They don't need to import anything, which means you're going to have, you know, like Hitler uh, in, in the 30s, late 30s, uh, General Chung Hee Park in South Korea, starting in the 70s. These people were able to turn around a destroyed economy and make it a powerhouse within a few years. The South Korean example, with a military government, you can't get any. Um, the thing that America find, uh, was supporting South Korea at the time was nonsense. They killed the guy. This type of economic system is a proven success. And Putin is your last example. Now it's Crimea uh, adopting in, adopting this system in Central Asia. Um, this is why the Africans are abandoning the West. They could give loans and support at much better terms than the West can. This is a wonderful thing. Liberalism now is a joke, and now the world knows it. And on top of all that, the Russian North church is now seen as the religion of resistance and the western confessions um with a, with a handful of exception uh, are seen as simply um politically speaking conformist russian orthodoxy is now the spirituality of um resistance and this is why in all of north korea the only religious institution that exists is a russian orthodox parish in pyongyang um, and that's the reason why so this is nothing but a positive thing at least for the, in the medium term it's a very, very positive thing. Liberalism is gone, as it should be. If it's as you say, and it very well might be, that this ends in a big political defeat for liberal imperialism, what does that mean if this kind of weakness is being demonstrated on an international scale? What does that mean for the domestic situation on the North American continent? Uh, as we know from history, a lot of times the uh, failing and collapsing states are often the most dangerous type. What do you see with respect to p increased political repression and lashing out at the domestic population by Zog? Well, I've made I've actually used that exact same phrase. Um, for about five years, I said, you take an animal that's badly wounded and you push it into a corner. What is it going to do? And that would explain um, the you know, nuclear uh, arsenal. That would inclaim, um, explain the chemical weapons in, in Ukraine. It will explain the um, takeover of the media, uh, throwing people in prison for disagreeing, cleansing, including uh, a few years ago the end of Obama, a total cleansing of the military brass. I mean, hundreds of generals retired forcibly. Uh, same thing happened in Turkey. Um, so this is what an animal does when it's injured, dying, and backed into a corner, which is exactly where the Western world is. That explains the viciousness of the rhetoric a few days ago at the UN. I mean, even filthy length. This is not stuff that happened from a position of strength. It comes from a position of weakness. Throwing your opponents in prison obviously means you're terrified of them. You don't have a case. You're not allowed to talk uh, in, in the university or even, you know, in any any institution um, about our kind of stuff. You will not only be fired, but you'll have your bank account seized. Um, your God knows what will happen to your family. I've seen it happen. You've seen it happen. We have guys sitting in prison right now over it. It's far worse in Europe. This is what happens. That's why I keep using the phrase medium term. The U.S. is a different story. We, you know, um, the regime is fully leftist in every way, shape, matter, or form. If you don't conform, you're in trouble. Going back to our initial question, middle class Americans are in a very bad position. They have to toe the line. They'll probably be, be destroyed anyway and replaced anyway. And I think the last two elections uh, with Donald Trump and they're ridiculous. You know, shutting down campaign. Um, functions in a presidential election, which is a, you know a massive felony, a huge prison term for that. So now, perfectly okay, cities burning a couple summers ago, and the press saying how wonderful it is. 
uh, white people being deliberately humiliated by official sources everywhere. You know, you have tens of millions of Americans who've had enough. They have to. They're being attacked and who um, are saying it outwardly. Now, it's up to the nationalist movement, which is you know, unfortunately not in a position to do this, to create a parallel economy. That's why donations and support, even legal assistance, is essential for people who are listening to this right now. So we're putting ourselves in the line of fire, and it it's, can be very frightening. And the private sector is the one who met me. The state is, you know, they do what corporations say. They have no autonomy. But corporations are what matters. They're not subject to any legal limitations of what they can say and do. I'd much rather deal with government than deal with uh, BlackRock. Not that there's a difference anymore. Uh, at least there, there's standards. You know, I take money, I go to the mafia before I go to, to the regime. Um, so uh, short term, you're going to suffer. You can't get out of it. There's not much you can do. The economy is bottoming out. Protecting your job, it may be nice, you have little kids. But deep down, you know even that's not going to be enough. You have to make preparations for when this all comes down, either personally or collectively. Suffering is in the cards. Either that or you shut your mouth and pretend that the regime is correct, which is really hard. Um, only a sociopath could do that. The sociopaths have no standards. They'll say truth and falsehood are the same. So that's, that's where it stands. Middle-class America, I think there's like eight of them left, that lower, that, that white-collar group that we were talking about in the beginning, they have to ask themselves this. At some level, they have to know this is garbage. And that if they're, they're white or, or Asian and male, they're in serious trouble. You could fire them tomorrow and there's nothing they can do. And um, their wages are going down. The benefits are going down. Uh, the, the gig economy, everything from the Great Reset is going to destroy them anyway. Um, their debt is out of control. What exactly are they serving? Who are they serving? What, for what benefit? Whatever you have is going to last much longer. So that's why we need assistance. And this is the mindset that um, our educated people, we, they have to sit down and suffer over this, as I did, as you guys have. It's going to happen. You are going to get in trouble at one point or another. Those are the choices that you have. And it's extremely, but that's only the short term. Medium term, as the regime is exposed as fraudulent, as you know, Trump did a great job there. Time magazine came out and said, here's the story of how we controlled that election. Come right out and say it. They use words like cabal and conspiracy right in the right in the article. It's nine pages in Time magazine. I did a whole show on it. Admitting that. I figured, well, there's no organized movement against us. We can say whatever we want. So it's not it's not a question anymore. There's really no way the cognitive dissonance is always going to be there. And there's no rationalization at this point. When they're saying this is what we're doing to you. So medium term, things are looking up. Short term, it's going to be a lot of pain. 